Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH. I'm Sherry Alexander, and we want to welcome our guest today, Kelly Williams Brown, author most recently of Gracious. Welcome to Writers Forum, Kelly. Well, thank you so much for having me, Professor Alexander. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Kelly was a Loyola student a long time ago, um, not a real long time ago. She's still a millennial, um, and she's kind of like a representative millennial for the United States. You kind of coined the word adulting. But before we get to that, you, you're from this area originally. I am originally from this area, yes. Um, and let us please return to me being a representative millennial because I always chafe a tiny bit when people say All that. Right. But uh, yeah, I'm originally from the area. I grew up in Covington and Houston, kind of back and forth a lot. Uh, went up to Oregon involuntarily in middle school when my family moved and then came right back on down to go to Loyola and uh, study under your wise tutelage. Well, enough about that. Um, <laughs> you were, though, a Katrina student. Which, I was. And, and that, you, I, I was reading online a column that you wrote about your Katrina experience while you were in college. Mm -hmm. And that's really had some impact on you. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I want to say first, you know, it's impossible to think of anyone who was anywhere in southern Louisiana or Mississippi during Katrina that it didn't have a big impact on. And I always like to clarify that in terms of Katrina experiences, mine was just as easy as, as it could possibly be, which is still to say excruciatingly difficult, but I didn't lose a grandmother or, you know, a family home. But, you know, I think at age 21, uh, I was going into my senior year at Loyola and I was just so excited. You know, I had just finished uh, interning in Washington, D.C. I was all proud of myself. I had uh, positions lined up with Society of Professional Journalists and the Loyola Maroon, and I was I was just ready to go. And, you know, one morning my roommates burst in and they said, hey, get up, we need to go. Uh, in the grand tradition of college students, I may or may not have been a little hungover. Uh, it was a Saturday morning, and I said, uh, I don't know, guys, come back in two hours. And they said, no, 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 we're, we're leaving. And didn't have a car. Uh, thought about trying to get on as a stringer with the AP in the Superdome, but then I realized that my mother is too nervous for that. And, you know, like for everyone, I, I watched, and at first I felt that relief when it looked like we had dodged the bullet and then watched the anchors on air make frowny faces as people at Baptist said that the water was rising and they didn't know why. And it was such a, it was such a shock to know you know, I had thought before about jobs going away or a relationship going away or, you know, a family member dying or what have you. I had never in a million years sort of tried to conceive of what it would be to have a city go away or a life go away. And like everyone, uh, I did quite a bit of crying. It was like something had broken in me and all of a sudden I just cried every day, all the time. I'm still a champion crier. I used to never cry. And, and to this day, I can cry about just about anything, happy, sad. But it was such a, a good lesson in often you will find yourself in a landscape that's not of your making. You did not choose that you maybe didn't even imagine. And your choice is to calcify into your own anger, uh, resent what isn't yours and what doesn't exist anymore, or try to figure out a way to live in, in this new place. And I think that's what everyone in this area had to do after Katrina. 
Well, you're here um, in New Orleans as you're going to be the keynote speaker at a conference of young people called Emerge, and you were saying that that's sort of the theme of what you're going to talk about is resilience is what you said is necessary for young people today. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's not the exact same thing, but I do see some parallels between the experience that we had as New Orleanians, you know, in a during Katrina versus how, you know, we saw sort of a spectacular nationwide meltdown with the Great Recession. And again, things that you had thought would be there uh, in terms of the ability to get a job or to move forward within your current job or to have health benefits all of a sudden was gone. And, you know, again... Ain't dare no more, as we nope, say. Nope, <laughs> nope. You can go anywhere in this world and you will not find the job market that you had, <laughs> uh, you know, in the, in the early... Uh, in the early 90s, the 2000s. Well, you, at a very remarkably to many people young age, you wrote a really a New York Times best-selling book. It's been translated into several languages. And to me, a mark of you know you've arrived is when you look in Wikipedia and you're credited as the originator. You wrote a book called Adulting. Mm-hmm. How did you come to write that book? Well, adulting is uh, basically the book that I really needed when I was a confused 22-year-old, very briefly, not under your tutelage, you know, having having left that nest. Um, and I was, to my credit, re- very prepared for my job, which was to be a news reporter, but I was utterly unprepared to be a human. Uh, questions like, how does bleach work? How do I ask for a raise at work? Um, even I am so very poor that I cannot afford a dresser. My old one has dissolved in the rain because it was made of particle board and I had to move during a thunderstorm. And now I don't have, you know, a furniture so much as giant piles of clothing. And my house looks like my, my tiny apartment looks like a heroin user lives there. What do I do? And I was lucky enough to have several older friends, uh, old, you know, 27 to 32, but they had that five or 10 years experience of living on their own. And when I thought about writing a book, someone said, you should write an advice book. And I thought, oh my goodness, you haven't smelled my refrigerator. I cannot tell anyone how to live. But then I thought, okay, well, you're a reporter and your job is to go find experts on, on matters that may be really unfamiliar to a reader and figure out how to explain, figure out how to make it entertaining and interesting to read along the way. And maybe you can do that. So I treated adulthood as, as my beat. And what I mean by adulting is essentially don't think of an adult as something you either are or you aren't, because in that measure, nobody thinks of themselves as an adult. Think of it as, as, a, as an active process that you do throughout the day. And it's those very small things. It's you get out of bed on time. And then you turn around and you make your bed, not because there's some inherent virtue or moral there, but because once you make your bed, once you take that 30 seconds, you have a nice area to lay your clothes out. And then when you come home at night and get back in your bed, your sheets won't be all twisted up and you won't get tangled in them and think, well, what's wrong with me? And so, uh, yeah, how to, the subtitle is How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps. And how did you, you didn't come up with all these steps all by yourself. <clears throat> no, I did not. Uh, like I said, I, I did a, both of my books, I always want to be clear, are reported. They are not 
you know, it is not that I meditated on a mountaintop and then came down and, and wrote these things. Uh, extensive interviews for, for both of them, hundreds of people. But And a lot of it was online. When you were a jur- working journalist, you, you've had a blog. Mm-hmm. And you'd have people comment on your stories. Yeah, I would. And having a blog, you know, I'll be honest, it's not as though I started a blog and then all of a sudden I was discovered, like, how could this have happened? I, I started a blog because I thought it would be a great book and I wanted to be able to prove to publishers and editors that I could write on my own, I could write every day, and that people might be really interested in the concept. And so what started kind of cynically turned out to be an incredible resource insofar as I was able to listen to hundreds of thousands of people who would give me feedback about what's difficult in their life as a, as a young person. Because again, we all have strengths and weaknesses. You know, I don't necessarily need to learn how to introduce myself or to feel comfortable alone at a party because those are skills that luckily I already have. I definitely need a lot of instruction on how to get my sink not to smell like my sink sometimes smells. Well, you cover a broad range, domestic um, chores, work, things like that, money. And the book was very well received. I mean, there was talk for a while. Somebody took an option of maybe making a TV sitcom out of it. Um, I was reading that Reese Witherspoon just loved it. She was recommending it all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been translated into, we said, several languages. So... Um, by any measure of either millennial, (laughs) I know you're wincing, um, or traditional values, it's Mm -hmm. a very successful book and you're a a successful writer and um, philosopher, sort of. You know, you're representing, you've you've digested this thought. It's not just what a day-to-day journalist would be looking at a small picture, but you, you've had the luxury now to step back and, and look at a bigger picture. And you've come up with another book. Um, the new one is Gracious, and this subtitle is A Practical Primer on Charm, Tact, and Unsinkable Strength. <laughs> so what is this book about? Well, uh, you know, the word gracious, I have just always loved that word. And in the same way that I wrote adulting because I, it's certainly something that I wanted to cultivate in myself, and I figured if I want to cultivate this, then there's probably others who feel the same way. Gracious is, I mean, I want to say it's, it's part modern etiquette manual, but more than that, it's just a rallying cry because I think people, and it's very much inspired, you know, by lots of women and men that I knew growing up in Covington, lots of interviews here uh, from from New Orleans folks. But I think that we live in, I'm going to be very Southern about this, uh, bless its heart, a, a somewhat rude time. I think it's really easy to be rude. And I think a lot of times people think and talk about manners as though they're either extinct, it's the dodo bird, the last one was killed. It can never come back. Incorrect. Or as though it's not an option for us. Well, how would you define graciousness? It's hard because it is such a big word, and it's an old word, too. It actually goes back to pre-Sanskrit, and you, you find it in 
all sorts of languages with all sorts of different implications, often spiritual ones. But to me, someone who is gracious is someone who brings a sense of, of comfort and ease and kindness to the world and to those around them. And it starts sort of internally, you know? Yeah, I was real interested in the fact you, you mentioned two really old books um, and you cite them, you know, scattered throughout um, 1857, Samuel Wells, How to Behave, and especially I enjoyed 1839, Miss Leslie's Behavior Book. Oh, I love Miss Leslie. If she if she were alive today, she would be the most beloved of snarky internet writers because she is hysterically funny. What I loved about these old etiquette books is that they're both so distant and so close. You know, you'll be going through and you'll think, okay, do I need 10 pages on, you know, how and when to remove and put on my gloves and what type of gloves do I need for what type of, you know, house call? But then you'll get to something where it's like Miss Leslie was watching my friends and I, and she'll say something like, ladies, do not waste your time with long, frivolous entreaties to your friends where you're expressing mutual admiration and each other, your own unworthiness of such a loving, amazing friendship, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, does she read my text messages to my <laughs> friends? Where I'm like, I love you so much. I'm a monster, but you're like the most beautiful creature that ever walked upon the earth. You're an angel from heaven who came down to teach us how to love. No, I'm the monster, etc. Well, I especially appreciated the chapter on the internet because you're saying it's rather a rude world. Um <laughs> And representing people that did not grow up with the Internet, I can tell you that people sit around, my age, sit around all the time decrying um, how the Internet has changed our way of being with each other. Um, and you have several hints here. One that I really thought was so significant, you say, don't forget what you say is forever. It's going to go out there. It's, you know, it can be passed on to others without your permission or knowledge. Yeah, I think there's um, some certain uh, presidential offsprings who might have done well <laughs> to remember that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's written in indelible ink, and it has a very, very long history and a very, very big mouth. It really does. You, you just don't know where it's gone. And... So, uh, granted, uh, th this might be a little bit of hypocrisy because I am 1,000% positive that I have said things in emails or text messages or what have you that, you know, should they come to light, I would be terribly embarrassed, probably most of them about my collegiate crushes. But that said, I really do, before I send something sensitive, I think, how would I feel if this went to both my parents, every boss I've ever had, that one ex-boyfriend, that one potential new boyfriend, although I should say that I have the best boyfriend in the world right now, <laughs> you know, and and everyone who I dislike, because it could. And it could, and people, everybody has some story of accidentally putting sin and it went to the wrong person. You know, and I always like to say, aside from just general caution, there's some things that you can do that really help. Uh, and one tip that I have is I don't write, type in anyone's reply uh, email or their email address into the reply until I'm ready to send. If I am just hitting reply, just delete it and then you can reinsert it later. 
Also, if you're on Gmail, there is a really fun function that you can turn on that is a 10-second undo where you hit send and then you have 10 or 30 seconds to undo it because they haven't actually sent the email yet. Ah, I didn't know that. I punch that button all <laughs> the <late>. time. <laughs> well, hey, start today. Well, and another um, hint that I have found people don't realize, you don't have to say yes to everybody. In other words, just because everybody you know is sending you, they want you to be on LinkedIn or they want you to be your friend on Facebook and you feel, well, I don't want to make the person feel bad. You don't have to say yes. You don't have to be everyone's friend. You don't have to have... I know my kids have, one of them has a thousand friends. And he said to me, you don't really get Facebook, do you? Because I don't have very many friends. I mean, they're, they're my friends that I know. and Your actual friends. Yeah, and they yeah. don't live here. So I can keep in touch with them, even though they're scattered around the country. But, but they're my real friends. Right. And I think that really gets to a bigger point about social media in general, which is, I feel like the internet is very pushy. It's it's always saying, hey, why don't you look at this? Why don't you look at that? Do you want to be friends with this person? Do you want to look at what this person that you hate is doing with their life? Why not go over here and read something that you know will upset you? Do it now. Do it now. And it's binging and bonging and blah, blah, blah. The internet is not going to set boundaries for you. You have to set those boundaries. And I love the example. One of my good friends, Alex, is a, is a very successful writer in Portland, and she was told by everyone when she went freelance that she had to be on Twitter. She had to be on all the social media. Got on Twitter. She was great at it. And within a short amount of time, had tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands of followers, was tweeting all the time, was a sort of Twitter celebrity. And at one point, she felt like her brain was just getting cluttered and busy. And she didn't really know why. And she kept going. And then she did a calculation saying, okay, how many tweets do I send per day? How much time does each individual tweet take in terms of thinking, you know, thinking of the tweet, editing it, posting it, looking at the replies, replying to the replies, so on and so forth. And what she calculated is that if she kept up at her current rate, she would eventually spend nine years of her life, of her waking hours, on Twitter, tweeting. And she said, when I get to the end of my life, is that the output I want? And the answer for her was no. And so she quit Twitter, and the world did not come to an end, nor did her career. In fact, she's booked out and busier than ever. And we can let ourselves spend that time. It, it's so easy. It's, it's like opening a bag of chips and just eating one after another after another. You know, the bag of chips is never going to say like, hey, do you maybe want to be eating something else? And the Internet's never going to say like, hey, do you have relationships that you want to work on in real ways or do you have work to do or even do you want to just go sit in your yard and read a book and so for us to be cognizant of that and to push back and and decide you know when you sit down at the internet which sounds goofy but decide what you want to do decide what you're there for don't don't just allow yourself to get swept away I mean I can spend all day reading things that will upset me you know, it was the same thing when, when I was young. People who had grown up without television mm -hmm. said, oh, baby boomers, you know, you're spending all your life on television, and they studied the effects of it. And I think what you all go through is analogous to that. 
where people are studying, you know, how this is changing you, um, even physically, your brain mm-hmm. being online that much. But to get back to your book, um, you had a wonderful chapter, I thought, Grace Under Pressure and how you can um, take care of yourself. And you gave two examples of people who were gracious. One was a woman whose husband had committed suicide, and she was prominent um, publicly, and she at first didn't tell people. Mm -hmm. She felt that she shouldn't talk to other people. But then after that, you took some advice from her, what she learned. She ended up writing a book. Yeah, um, so that is my friend Sheila Hamilton. She's wonderful. Her book, uh, All the Things We Never Knew, I highly recommend it. She did a beautiful job of sort of telling her own story, but also really connecting it to the larger issue of mental health in America and how we don't talk about it. You know, we, we finally, you know, 50 years ago, we didn't talk about cancer. That was embarrassing. And and I feel like... It was the dread disease. Exactly. And, and, you know, now, of course, we do and we can. And I think the same thing needs to happen with mental illness. Separate issue. But she said that even though she's a really private person and it's hard for her to ask for help. I mean, and I found this too going through my own kind of really hard stuff, which I wasn't brave enough to talk about in the book. But people who love you want to help you and they want to be there for you. And it can be the hardest thing in the world to just reach out and say, hey, can you just come over and sit with me and have some tea and give me a hug? Can You know, when people offer help, when they know you're, you're going through something, just say yes. You can say yes. And something else that I think is an important sort of distinction to make is Sheila said, you know, this kind of happened before Facebook, but she said, if I'm going through something big, I don't publicly talk about it in real time. I give myself time to process it and understand it before I put it out to the world. And so I think that's also something to remember is that you can tell people and you don't have to tell everyone, you know, it's not an either or. And if it becomes, I've, I've posted things on Facebook, like, Hey everyone, you know, I'm going through some, uh, you know, heavy stuff and I'm all wrapped up at work, but don't worry, I'm okay. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks. You know, you can do that. Yeah. And it's okay to ask people for help or to speak out and not the way some people are very concerned that people give you too much information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't have to give everybody every last detail. No, you don't. That's a very gracious way you described. And then another woman who uh, Mary from Rite Aid, mm-hmm. um, she went through a horrible, horrible situation. You know, before Katrina. Mm-hmm. She lost her husband. She lost her children. And yet, somehow, she carries on. And What was her secret? Um, Mary is just the most incredible of ladies. I highly recommend visiting her. Uh, she's at St. Charles and, and Broadway in that Rite Aid. But, I mean, she is just compressed joy and serenity. And for her, I believe it really is a choice. She, of any human I've ever, you know, heard the story of or met, she has every right in the world to, to crawl into bed and to say, screw it. This life is terrible. This life has nothing for me. This life is cruel to me. And yet instead, she chooses again and again to turn her face toward, you know, the sun. And she has a very deep faith. 
her relationship with God really guides her. And she says, you know, to me, every time you pass someone, just touch them with your, your, excuse me, every time you, you pass someone, touch them with your goodness and, you know, touch them with the God in you because you don't know if you're ever going to pass them again. And she says, you know, she'll get two lane kids coming in and they're cranky because they're hungover or it's raining and they'll say, oh, it's a bad day. And she'll say, no, it's, it's not a bad day. And Mary could have chosen to interpret every single one of her days as bad days, but she doesn't. She takes it as a gift. She takes, she is present with the humans around her. She, she moves with mission and purpose and her values, you know, are, are so abundantly and beautifully clear. And the thing about values is that they're easy when things are good, right? when it's not a hard call to make, when everything's going your way, when people you like are doing the right thing and people you dislike are doing the wrong thing, it's really easy. But then when it's hard, when you're in the tricky situations, that's when it's actually a value or a moral. Uh, otherwise, it's just an aesthetic preference. And Mary is probably the most moral, gracious, moral, gracious value person I think I've ever met. You said, uh, you told someone after you wrote this, you wished you had gotten to interview Miss Manners, Michelle Obama, and Dolly Parton. To... That is uh, one of my holy trinities, we'll put it that way. Well, besides being here to um, speak, uh, and keynote speaker, I didn't realize, at this uh, national conference, this Emerge, um, what else are you working on? So I am actually, I'm very excited to be working on the second edition of Adulting. That is uh, coming up here. And... I've got some sort of secret projects, and just in the nature of being an adult, I just bought my first house. So oh, congratulations! Thank you. So I'm I'm learning uh, the, the joys of home ownership. <laughs> and you can try out all those um, hints that you gave us about <laughs> taking care of your apartment. Now it's absolutely well. You know what I always try to remind people about stuff like this is that even if you don't know something. It's probably not rocket science. So right now, I do not know how to install an automatic garage door because I've got a cool little detached garage, but it's not rocket science. And other people know how. And I can probably either get one to teach me or just pick someone. Well, Kelly, we look forward to everything. We look forward to the um, revised book on adulting. We look forward to whatever your secret project is. Um, this book, you, 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 I read a thing in uh, the New York Times about a couple of months ago, and it was you and Emily Post's great-great-granddaughter, Lizzie. Who the secret project may or may not be with. Well, and she's just, she's just edited the 19th edition for people that don't know Emily Post's etiquette. It's the standard. So now you and, and Emily Post are on a uh, <laughs> parallel... No, 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 no. <laughs> no, we're not. But Lizzie is a wonderful friend. And uh, it, it's rare to meet someone who is obsessed, as obsessed with manners as you are that's also really fun and hilarious, and she is. Well, and she liked your book. She said, Kelly Williams Brown's Gracious reads the way a phone call with a best friend feels. The notions she puts forth about living a gracious life are both aspirational and attainable. And let's face it, there is nothing better than talking about genuinely good and attainable ideals for humanity with a heavy dose of the one time I did mushrooms and his mama didn't raise him right. 
You've been listening to Writers Forum. We want to thank our guest today, Kelly Williams-Brown, author most recently of Gracious. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.